And that, you know what that means? That means, what did somebody say? Taxes. No, 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 no. Taxes come in April. You've got time. No, what it means is that the college football bowl season has arrived. You bet. 35 different bowls to be played this year. (laughs) You know, I looked online at some of the teams that are playing in bowls. Some of them don't even have winning seasons. It's amazing. I don't know what they're playing for. (laughs) This country loves its football. There is no question about it. You know, someone once said that in a football game, there are 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest and 60,000 people in the stands cheering them on who are desperately in need of exercise. I thought that describes football pretty well. (laughs) Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 and following that he offers us rest. Not rest for our bodies, but rest for our souls. Listen to what he says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. At the end of the year here, I suspect there are quite a number of us that could use some rest. If When I say rest, you think in bodily terms, then perhaps all you really need is a good nap. I suggest you pick another time to do that. (laughs) But a nap would probably take care of your problem. But if a simple nap will not bring the kind of rest that you crave, then sit up straight. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, page 1170. And let the word of God bring rest to your souls. Ephesians chapter 2. We will be looking this morning at verses 2 through 10. Excuse me, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And I've entitled it, Rest for the Weary. Rest for the Weary. And in these three verses, there are three glorious truths regarding our salvation that we need to be reminded of so we may find rest for our souls. Paul wrote this letter while imprisoned in Rome, probably somewhere around A.D. 60 through 62, Acts chapter 28 details his confinement there. And he wrote four letters, at least the letters that we have. They're called the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So these are letters from a prison cell. The oldest of the manuscripts 
of this letter to the Ephesians do not contain the name in verse 1 to or to the saints who are at Ephesus. And so there is some question about whether this letter was directed to a particular church or whether this was a circular letter. That is a letter that was written and intended to be sent to more than one church. That's quite possible. Circular letters were not unknown in the first century. We have some very obvious examples of them in the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. There we have seven circular letters that were intended to be delivered to all seven churches that they might all benefit from each of the letters and their contents. And so a circular letter is not uncommon at all. At the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, he writes as follows in verse 16 of chapter 4. And when this letter, that is the letter to the church of Colossae, is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Some believe the letter coming from Laodicea is actually what we know as the letter to the church at Ephesus. That's possible. It's possible. But as Paul writes this tremendous letter, filled with doctrinal truth that is an anchor for our soul, we can find some great comfort this morning with regard to rest. Paul addresses in chapter 2, in the beginning part of the chapter, our redemption. Our redemption. And he says in verse 7 that this redemption has come to us as an extravagant display of the very grace of God so that all of the creation, that would be both the angelic creation and human creation, would marvel in the glory of God in Christ. He has redeemed us, not first and foremost for our benefit, but for His glory. For His glory. But in our redemption that brings Him maximum glory, we find rest for our souls. So it is the richness of the grace of God that I would like to really focus on this morning as we look at verses 8, 9, and 10. There are three glorious truths here. The first one appears for us in verse 8. I've included on the back of your bulletin a little outline of this morning's message. The first glorious truth in verse 8 is that God has provided our complete salvation. He has has provided for us our complete salvation. He writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. This verse and the next one are some of the earliest verses that I have memory of when I first encountered the gospel many years ago. A man who took an interest in my soul and was bold enough to speak to me about the things of Christ. This verse, verse 8 and verse 9, were two of the very first verses that he opened the Bible and showed me and had me read and then talk to me about. They were pivotal verses. They were key verses. 
And so they have been very precious to me from those very, very early years. That man explained to me that grace, when it speaks here, that by grace you have been saved through faith, that grace essentially means God's undeserved favor. His undeserved favor. That is, that God is giving me something that I do not deserve. If He were to give me what I deserve, it would be damnation. But He gives me instead Christ and reconciles me to Himself. That is, by His grace, it is His unmerited, undeserved favor. And it is the very basis and cause of my salvation and yours. By grace, you are saved, Paul says. Through faith, verse 8. Through faith. Faith is assenting to or believing in something that it is true. And it is the means, Paul says, by which the gift of salvation is received. It is God's unmerited favor to us received by faith. That is, we believe it to be true. We assent to its truthfulness. We recognize that the Bible's description of who we really are and what our problem really is, is a correct diagnosis. That God has hit the nail on the head and He has absolutely penetrated to the very depth of who we are in His description of us as lost in sin. And thus, we believe His solution for that problem, which is Jesus Christ and Him alone. We put faith in that reality, we embrace it by truth, or by faith, that truth and salvation is received. By grace you are saved through faith. Not of, of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? It's fascinating when you look at the verse here. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of, its, of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There's a question with regard to what is the gift of God, and what does the pronoun that refer to? What does it speak of? Is it faith? Is that what Paul is telling us? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Is that the statement that he's making for us? The Scriptures do speak of faith as originating in the grace of God. That is a true statement. Acts chapter 18, verse 27, we find recorded there that he, that is Apollos, helped greatly those who had believed through grace. Those who had believed through grace. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It has been granted to believe, Paul says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. So, theologically it is true that our faith is part of God's gift to us. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here in verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I don't believe that's what he's saying. The pronoun that is a neuter pronoun. 
It is a neuter pronoun, and the word faith is feminine. It is feminine. For that matter, so is the word grace. It's unlikely in the Greek language that the antecedent of the pronoun that is the word faith. It's not likely, grammatically. It's far more likely that the referent here, when Paul says, verse 8, you've been, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, is speaking of the entire package of salvation. God's entire redemption of us. It's more likely that that's what he's speaking of. Salvation by grace through faith is the gift itself. In fact, the word gift is in the neuter. It's Christmas time, or at least yesterday was Christmas. And in our culture, Christmas is a gift-giving time, right? Also in our culture, there is an obligation to purchase gifts for people. You know how this goes. You think to yourself, I wonder if they'll buy me something. It's not that I need something from them, but if they buy me something, then I'm obligated to buy them something. So do I preempt them and buy them something first and give it to them and then place them in my obligation so that they will then in turn have to buy me something? Or do I buy them something and wait to see if they give me something first? But if I do that, then they'll think I only am giving them a gift because they gave me one. So perhaps I should preempt them. Or maybe I just wait altogether, see if they give me anything, and then go to the after Christmas sales and buy something. Or better yet, maybe I re-gift something to them. Yeah, you know who you are, you re-gifters. We just have this very funny culture about gift giving. It creates obligations for us. But that's not true with God. God is not obligated to us in any way. God doesn't grant us the gift of salvation because of some obligation that has been created by us. He has not been put into our debt. Paul's very clear. It is purely of grace. Verse 8 again, for by grace you have been saved. It is by grace. What does it mean to be saved? You ever thought about that? What does it mean to be saved? To be sure, it means that our sin has been forgiven. But it doesn't stop there. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's more comprehensive than that. In fact, Paul explains to us in the earlier part of this chapter exactly what he means when he talks about us being saved. He says that you have been saved, that is, you have been delivered, verse 1, from death, spiritual death. You, speaking to the recipients of the letter, and if it indeed is a circular letter, then easily enough to us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins trespasses to leave the way to stray from the path of righteousness sins to miss the mark you were dead in these things you were spiritually dead death according to the scripture is separation it is separation it is spiritual separation from god and physical death is separation of body and soul and the final death is the separation of the sinner from god in the lake of fire 
So it is always a separation. And what Paul says here is that you were, we were dead. We were separated from God in our trespasses and sins. Separated from him. Dead. I've done a lot of funerals in my life. And I can tell you one thing for sure. Dead people don't move. Dead people don't respond. Dead people just lay there because they're dead. There is no hope for them. And that's what Paul's saying here. Is that we formerly were dead. That is without hope. He actually says the same thing a little bit further down. We were without hope. And without God in the world. The end of verse 12. We have been saved from death. We have been made alive, as Paul will tell us. Beyond that, we have been saved from Satan, verse 2. In our spiritual death, that is, in, in our inability to respond to God spiritually, we formerly lived according to the prince of the power of the air, that is, Satan himself. We were under his dominion, under his domain, and he uses the fear of death to keep people under his thumb. We were under the reign and realm of Satan. Beyond that, verse 3, we were in slavery to our own lusts. We formerly lived, verse 3, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That is, our own lust is what drove us. Our decisions were based upon what we thought would make us the most happy. And we were driven by it, often not even consciously thinking about why we were doing what we were doing. We were just driven along like an unreasoning beast in slavery to our own lusts. And as it says at the end of verse 3, by nature, children of wrath, residing under the wrath of an almighty and righteous God. My friends, Paul says we have been saved from these things. This condition is no longer true of us. We are no longer those who know Christ savingly, are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are no longer under the power of the prince of the air. We are no longer enslaved to our own lusts. We are no longer children of wrath. We have been saved. Beyond that, we have been saved to something, saved from these miserable condition and saved to something. And that, Paul tells us in verse 5, begins with our new life with Christ. He made us alive, Paul says, together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have been united to Jesus Christ. Spiritually, we have now become one with Him. And we now begin to share the life of Christ. It resides within our soul. Paul goes on to say, verse 6, that we have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is, positionally, we now sit with Christ in the heavenlies. We are no longer mere earthlings, no longer people of the flesh, no longer people without the life of God within us. 
But our citizenship has been transferred. It is now a citizenship of heaven, according to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. We have been seated positionally with Christ in the heavenly places, and the very life of God now lies within our soul. He has accomplished amazing things for us. As we have been spiritually united with Christ, we now share his resurrection life. Now, I know it seems elusive. I know it slips away from you, both intellectually, theologically, and practically. I understand that. Sin still puts up a vicious fight. It doesn't die easily. It doesn't roll over and go away. But that does not change the reality of the matter. Is that if we have been saved by grace through faith, we are a new and different people. The very life of God now resides within us. As God raised Christ from the dead to walk in newness of life, we too share in his resurrection and walk in newness of life. And it is by faith that we apprehend that truth and begin to experience its delivering power, its strength to say no to temptation and the rest for our souls. God has provided for our complete salvation, body and soul. Secondly, God has prohibited our human effort. He has prohibited our human effort. There are essentially two religions in the world. They all boil down to one of two religions. There is the religion of human effort, And there is the religion of divine initiative. Everything falls into one of those two categories. It is human effort or is divine initiative. Human effort is any religion in which one's effort contributes to the final state of one's soul. That is all religions other than biblical Christianity. All Christian knockoffs, all cults, all Eastern religions... Any kind of religious activity you can think of is a a religion of human effort. There is only one religion of divine initiative, and it is this. That while we were dead in our transgressions, verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Paul reinforces, verse 9, for us, He reinforces God's singular role in our redemption. And he does so by by specifically excluding any notion of human effort from the equation. I mean, in a sense, he could have just said, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And that's a pretty comprehensive statement. But he knows the wickedness of the human heart, and, and that is we want to contribute something. Can't I just put a a little bit into the deal? And so Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, slams the door shut here and he says, not as a result of works. Why? Why? Because all you proud people would boast. That's why. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. No one should boast. 
Romans chapter 11, verse 6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If there is any measure of human effort involved in our redemption, then it is no longer by grace. It becomes a reward of human effort. And God will not share his glory with anyone. He will not share his glory with anyone. So he specifically prohibits all human effort. All human effort. Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Titus chapter three, verse five. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The testimony of the scriptures are clear. There is no human effort involved. None. Zero. There is none allowed. God will not share his glory with anyone. He will not permit any measure of human effort to enter into the salvation transaction. And it is all of God. It is all of God. And praise God for it. Praise God for it. Now this concept can be elusive. It can be elusive. We, we would read these verses and we would, we would assent to them verbally. But this can be an elusive concept, even for Christians. That God has prohibited all human effort. If we're not careful, we, we can find it just gradually and subtly slipping away from us. Symptom of that is when we might look at someone and think or say... I'm not sure that person's savable. I don't know if God can save him. I mean, look at his background. Look at his upbringing. Look at his lifestyle. I'm not sure God can save anybody like that. When we make such a statement or think such a thought, What we have done is denied the fact that all human effort has been prohibited. That it is by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Can God not give his gift of salvation to anyone he chooses? The answer? Yes. And you better rejoice in that because if it relied on us, none of us would have a hope. None of us would have a hope. You know, this, this elusive and subtle notion of human effort can, can enter into a church, too. It can enter into a church where, where a climate be, can be created where we're, we only like people like us. We only want people like us to come here. We don't want people like them to come here because they're going to they're gonna change us. They're going to bring us down. They're going to whatever it is. So we only want people like us, you know, squeaky clean on the outside and inside full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So it can subtly slip in that way. We begin to look around and we say, those new people, we're not so sure we like them here. Can slip in or manifest itself in a performance-based attitude towards our own spiritual walk. That's the idea where, where God's love and acceptance of us is, runs hot and cold. 
We think to ourselves, boy, I'm not sure how much God loves me today. My commitment to him today hasn't been very strong. My, my walk of faith has not been that good. I haven't read my Bible in days now. I, I haven't prayed much. I had an opportunity to share my faith and, and I let it go by. I've had a real string of ugly, ungodly thoughts. Maybe God's acceptance of me is not so good. Maybe he has a frowny face towards me. And if I want a smiley face from God, I I need to do better. I need to work harder. I need to perform. It can be very, very subtle. My friends, there is no room for boasting. No room for human effort. God prohibits it. His salvation is all of God and none of us. Because salvation is not a human achievement, it is a gift. That means we can rest secure in it. We can rest secure in it. It doesn't ebb and flow with our performance. We are secure in the grace of God and God's acceptance of us. God's provided for our complete salvation. God has prohibited our human effort. And then verse 10, God has prepared our good works. Many of us memorize Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but we leave off verse 10. What a shame. What a shame, for it is, it is tied together here. For we are His workmanship, he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Literally in the Greek, the verse has the pronoun his right at the very front for emphatic purposes. A more literal translation would be, for his workmanship we are, Yoda speak, you know. (laughs) For his workmanship we are, and it's herein that lies the reason why human effort cannot be a part of the salvation equation. We cannot contribute to it because we are the recipients of salvation by God's own doing, for we are His workmanship, He says. Prepared beforehand to walk in good works. My friends, when God saves us, He transforms us. He transforms us. He changes us into, translated here, His workmanship. His artwork, his masterpiece. We become the masterpiece of God. We become, we become the artwork of God. We are a new creation that is, that is as totally different from the old creation as the dead is from the living. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We've been changed. We've been transformed. The goal and the purpose of this new creation, according to verse 10, this new creation formed out of our union with Christ is to live out the good works, the godly behavior that God has planned and prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Notice in chapter 1, verse 4, 
where Paul there speaks about being chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Our choice in Christ, in the eternal decree of God, includes our good works. It includes our godly behavior. It's not an afterthought. It's not a, a secondary condition. It's for what we have been chosen to do. Indeed, it is the basis under which the angelic realm will forever glorify God as they look upon the fact that he has taken his enemies and he has so transformed them that they are now his friends and they now walk in righteousness. Good works, it says. Good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are these good works? What is it that God has predestined us to walk in? What is it that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in? The answer is given to us in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this very epistle. We have been chosen by God to begin to reflect the character of God to a fallen world. Very simply, verse 25, chapter 4. Good works prepared by God before the foundation of the world. The first good work is that we are to be honest and truthful. We are to be honest and we are to be truthful. We are to use our mouth for building people up, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, so that is to begin to speak as Christ would speak, to build our brothers and sisters up in the faith and not to tear them down. These are good works. We have been predestined to demonstrate kindness and forgiveness, verse 32. To be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, verses 3 and following. We have been predestined for the good work of sexual purity in thought, word, and deed. Do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater shall have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We're being transformed by our union with Christ in the very image of Christ himself. And so God has laid out for us from before the foundation of the world that we would be a holy people. And that sexual immorality and impurity would not occupy our thoughts or our speech or our deeds. God has planned for us to walk in the Spirit. Verse 18, chapter 5. He has predestined us to walk in the Spirit. This is, this is the life of God that has been laid out for us. We are to be filled with the Spirit, he says, which manifests itself in, in singing and speaking and making melody in our hearts to God. These are the good works he has laid out for us. 
We're to give thanks, he says. Verse 20, chapter 5. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We have been predestined to be grateful people, to be contented people, to be thankful people. It's easy to be thankful when it's going your way. The challenge comes when it's not, right? But we have been predestined, he says, to be a thankful people. We've been predestined to be a submissive people. A submissive people. Verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is God's will for us. This is God's eternal plan for us. These are the good works that he has prepared before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. Submissive people. Husbands and wives. First illustration. Husbands are to exercise their authority with humility. Wives are to walk in submission to their husband's authority. Parents and children. Parents are to exercise their authority with humility. Children are to walk in submission to their parental authority. Masters and slaves. Masters are to exercise their authority with humility. Slaves are to, in submission to their masters, work heartily as unto the Lord. We don't live in a slave culture. We can make application to employer and employee relationships. So in these major areas of our lives, the marriage, the family, the marketplace, Paul says that all of these things God is concerned about and he has predestined the path of righteousness for us to walk in. To walk in. My friends, it's no burden to walk in these things. It is no burden to walk in these things, for this is what we have been saved to do. This is what the Spirit longs for us to do. This is what the Spirit is working in us to produce. They're according to our new nature. God has prepared a path of righteousness, and he has called us to walk in it. But here comes the rub. The rub is that we stray from the path. Isn't that right? We turn from the path. We get confused and lose our way. We step off the track. And then the Spirit calls us back. The Spirit calls us back. I shared with you some weeks ago that I have an incredible propensity to get lost. I am the worst with directions, if not in the world, then certainly in the top ten. I'm terrible with directions. Someone decided to help me with that and purchased a gift for me, a TomTom. Greatly appreciative of TomTom. I call it the speaker. It speaks to me and tells me where to go. Now it's not a stress when I have to go somewhere and visit somebody. I don't have to worry about getting lost and turned around and on the wrong road and all of those things. I just put the address in the speaker. It's like an oracle. It talks to me. 
keeps me going. It lays out for me the path to follow. It's so cool. At night, you know, when the freeway splits, it tells you which side of the split to be on with these green flashing arrows. And if that were not enough, there's a the voice that speaks to you. It says, this is the way of righteousness. Walk in it. <laughs> and I do well as long as I listen. But sometimes I think I know the way. I don't know why I think I know the way. Because I don't know the way. But I think I know the way. So I decide to turn before the speaker says turn. And then it speaks to me again. It says, make a U-turn. <laughs> right? And if I refuse, it speaks again. A little more urgently. Make a U-turn. <laughs> Idiot, make a U-turn. <laughs> well, that's kind of the way it is for us. God has predestined the way for us to walk in it. We have the Spirit of God, and, and He communes with our spirit and, and through his word he calls us to the path of righteousness that has been prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. So I said it's not onerous, it's not hard to walk in these things. There's great joy in following the path. There's no burden for our soul when we walk in the path of righteousness that has been prepared for us. There's all kind of trouble. When we stray from the path, when we make our own turn, when we say to the speaker, be quiet, I know how to get there. And then we hear the words, make a U-turn. Make a U-turn. We're coming up on the end of the year. Maybe, maybe you're a little off the path. Soul's kind of weary. Feeling burdened maybe you're struggling just in obedience to god the relationship is just not as close as it once felt god has not left you he has not left you you have strayed from the path the path that has been laid out for you the answer is to make a u-turn the answer is that you make a U-turn and come back onto the path of righteousness. To begin to, again, do these things which God has established for us before the foundation of the world. To be honest and truthful. To be kind and forgiving. To speak with our mouths words that edify and build people up rather than tear them down. To be sexually pure in our thoughts and words and, and deeds. To have a heart filled with the Spirit of God. A heart that sings one to another and to God. Reminding and exhorting and encouraging each other and ourselves to stay on the path. A heart of submission to those authorities that God has placed over us for our own good. To lead with humility if you've been placed in a position of authority. This is what it means 
This is what it means when Paul says, for we are his workmanship, we are his artwork, we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for these good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My friends, there is no burden in this. This will bring rest to our soul. Perhaps you do not know Christ. Perhaps you are here this morning and this is all new. You think to yourself, I don't know the path of righteousness. And I certainly have no ability to walk in it. I don't know what these people are talking about. To be freed from their lusts. Man, I'm driven by my lusts. My thought life is so mixed up. Even when I want to do something that's right, I can't. I don't. I regret it afterwards and and I promise myself I'll do better next time and next time I do the same thing. There's no relief. A sense of guilt, a a sense of fear, a sense of of a weight hanging over my shoulders. I know. I know I'm in slavery. I desire to be delivered. My friends, you can be delivered this day. This very day, this very moment, you can call out to Christ to deliver you. For by grace, Paul says, you have been saved through faith. If you will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that his death on that cross was for you as a substitute. To believe that his resurrection from the dead and his living evermore is your life too, if you will but embrace him by faith. Trusting Christ's sacrifice to satisfy God's righteous wrath. Believing that Christ's righteous life is now yours and desiring to live in it. The Bible says you will be saved. I pray you will not close out this year. Do not let 2010 close out on you. In darkness, in bondage, and in misery. May you turn your heart to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for the rest that you offer us in Christ. Rest from our human effort. Rest from our striving against sin. Rest from the fear of impending judgment. Rest from the guilt that overwhelms us. Rest from the enslavement to our own sin. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would strengthen our faith here at the end of this year. For all of us, oh Lord, strengthen us in our faith. Help us to cling firmly to the completed work of Christ. Oh Lord, open our eyes to see the path of righteousness that we might walk in it. Draw us back as we have strayed. Let us realize the fact that it is no burden to live in the way that you have predestined us to live. That indeed, when we stray from the path, we become our own worst enemies and we create all kinds of obstacles over which we stumble and fall. 
Lord, flood us with your grace and show us the way back. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.